Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dr. Dale on Quail. This month's podcast takes to the skies, and we talk about hawks, and we also talk about a favorite in Texas, the Roadrunner, and their impacts on quail and the great research being done on them. As always, joining us is Dr. Dale Rollins of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation and Ranch in Fisher County. Dr. Dale, great topic today, one that you're particularly passionate about, hawks and roadrunners. That's right, Gary. I appreciate the opportunity to visit with you all here today. Again, everybody has their own image of pariahs, enemies, mortal enemies that we said, ah, if I do this, I'll get more quail kind of thing. And hawks and roadrunners are two of the favorite pariahs, at least in West Texas. So we want to talk about that and talk about some precautions that we need to be aware of, again, because these are federally protected species. But hawks as a whole, we, our mortality at the research ranch, again, we're basing this on radio collared quail, so we follow them all year round. About 50%, uh, 60% of our mortalities are caused by mammals, especially during the breeding season. During the winter season, from September through March, most of our mortality we see during that time period is from raptors. And there's a couple of reasons for that is primarily because Texas serves as the wintering grounds or at least pass through for a lot of migrating raptors. So raptor numbers soar, no pun intended, <laughs> raptor numbers soar typically beginning about mid-October and they stay fairly high in certain locations until about the first of April. So that's a, that's a deadly time. I say the neighborhood gets rougher come October because we got some folks that are very efficient and they are now amongst us. Hawks particularly have a protected status. Folks need to know that uh, there are legal uh, repercussions for trying to impact those hawk populations. I'm gonna quote my preacher, Preacher Paul, you're free to choose your actions, but you're not free to choose consequences. And there are some pretty severe consequences. I don't recommend shooting hawks. Now I'm not gonna tell you I never did, because as a kid, 13, 14, 15 years old, I shot a couple. If you ever, if you're into the ecological literature, get a book called Sand County Almanac and it's by Alda Leopold, and read the, read the essay called Thinking Like a Mountain. And it talks about when he was young and full of trigger itch, how he shot wolves because every wolf that they shot meant more mule deer and so forth. Then later on in life, he saw that as the mule deer population increased, it had a detrimental effect on the mountain, on the habitat. And through his uh, development and adulthood, he began to realize that probably wasn't a good thing. The fact that they increased abundance of prey so much that it had an impact on the habitat. Now we're not gonna do that with quail. Quail have no way of destroying their habitat. But we need to be careful and we need to be reflective, if you will, about conscientious about the role of predation and especially for critters that are state or, or federally protected as the raptors and roadrunners are. Certain hawks that are more uh, predominant in your area of the state in the rolling plains and maybe in Texas in general that our landowners might see more often than not? In West Texas, that's where we're at in Fisher County, I like to define hawks in terms of military aircraft. Um, you've got your B-29 bombers. These are called technically the Buteo hawks, B-U-T-E-O. These are the broad-winged hawks, the red-tailed hawk being the most common. That's the most common hawk we have in Texas. Uh, hawk identification can be tricky. Mm. 
I'm not an expert in it, but I, I work on the rule of thumb that uh, all bootios are red tails until proven otherwise. So they're the most common bootio we have. During the summer months, we'll have one called Swainson's Hawks. If you're a farmer uh, and you've got a hay field during the summer, you cut it down, and all of a sudden in uh, late September, October, you see hawks on every, quay, on every bale of hay. Those are probably Swainson's Hawks. Uh, the red tail hawks are the, the B-29s. That means they're powerful but they're slow and they're lumbering. They're not designed to catch quail. They'll catch some quail. I've flushed red-tailed hawks off quail before, but they're not quail-specific threats. Contrasted now to the F-16s, the accipiters as they're called, and this is the Cooper's hawk and the sharp-shinned hawk. These are pigeon-sized hawks. They are designed for air-to-air combat, and they are good at their trade. So I tell people that a, a Bob White or a blue quail, if you've ever heard one screaming at the top of their lungs when they're flying, that means an accipiter is on their butt. And the accipiters, again, are designed for air-to-air combat. They're probably the adult quail's worst enemy. I tell people that if they're a fan of horror movies, that an accipiter, a Cooper's hawk, takes the form of Jason and Freddy Krueger at the same time <laughs> and scares the bejabbers out of a Bob White. So again, if you ever hear one screaming bloody murder, you look up and he's probably in close pursuit by a uh, by an F-16. And then we have the third class of uh, raptors in West Texas, the, what historically are called marsh hawks. Uh, the technical term for them is northern harriers. And the aircraft that they represent is the A-10 warthog. And that's the low-flying aircraft that's the tank killer in the uh, Iraqi wars and so forth. Deadly, very common during the winter months. They show up at the research ranch about the 20th of October. They leave out there about 20th of March. So for about six months there, we've got a lot of northern harriers. Northern harriers aren't quite the agile critter that a Cooper's hawk is, but they are very adept at catching critters on the ground because low hovering flights kind of thing, and so they can pounce on a quail. And probably they count for, who knows, maybe half of the mortalities we see during the winter months between the, the Cooper's Hawk and the Northern Harrier. Those are our two greatest quail-specific threats. What's their tactic, Dr. Dale? Will they fly low, flush the birds, get the covey up in the air, and then uh, pluck one out of the air? For the, uh, for the accipiters, they're, they're capable of, of catching them in the air. But most of the time, they force the bird on the ground and they catch the bird on the ground. The harriers, are not, aren't, again, aren't quite that agile, so they'd be basically flushing around. They'd go to the ground, then they'd be in pursuit at the ground level. Now, we did some really interesting work oh, back in about 2010 asking the question. We often talk about escape cover and talk about the importance of escape cover. Well, exactly what is escape cover if you're a Bob White Quill? We tend to be fairly lax in what we call that. If you've got a tumbleweed over there, well, that's, that's escape cover. If we, if we can't say anything else good about a plant, we say well, it probably offers escape cover, some ability for the quail to evade its uh, various enemies. But we, we had a young lady by the name of Becky Perkins working on her master's at Texas Tech University and did a really interesting project. And that project basically involved a trained goshawk. Really? Now, a goshawk is a Cooper's hawk on steroids, but it's a favorite of falconers. And I'll take this point to say, if you ever have the opportunity as a land manager, as a quail hunter, to spend the day with a falconer, jump on it, because you're going to learn some things about quail and quail behavior that you never appreciated before. And one of those is just what quail call escape cover. In fact, I'm going to be even more specific and say what they call a storm shelter. 
Now, I was raised in Tornado Alley, Gary, and all of us had a storm shelter sure. growing up. I mean, we knew when to go to the, we knew when to hit the, the cellar, storm cellar kind of thing. Quail seem to have, based on this research, quail seem to have a picture in their mind. If I'm right here, the nearest storm shelter is over here. Because <laughs> they don't have the chance to be flushed by a raptor and say, hmm, I wonder where I need to go. They got to get there. If they don't get there within about four to five seconds, they're dead meat. So you think they've predetermined where I, they're going? I, I can't prove that, but I speculate that. And those storm shelters, in our case, took the, play, took the form of large thickets of cat claw acacia, something about the size of a super cab pickup. Mm -hmm. They take the form of the taller prickly pear, and they can take the form of dense grass because uh, that dense grass, quail can screw down into that, and a hawk is... Uh, it's fairly, it's rendered fairly harmless like that. And working with these raptors, you learned, or I learned some interesting uh, observations on uh, bird behavior and hunting with falcons. One of their chosen falcons for hunting ducks is a prairie falcon. And that prairie falcon will be sent aloft and it'll be up there above this farm pond that has ducks on it. And then the handler will move in and flush the ducks off the water to put the ducks up in there. Well, those ducks know that that hawk is up there and they have a lot of respect for that hawk and they will get out of the water and get into the shoreline, into the grass and not flush. Interesting. Now we observe the same thing with quail. We're walking in there, the way we did this was Becky would walk in, we'd have this falconer and, uh, from Amarillo and he would have Vinny on his arm. And so they'd walk in here, one of my technicians, Barrett Kennecke at the time, we had a covey of quail out here that had, if it had 10 birds in it, half of them were radio collared. We were trying to ask the question, does radio collaring radio handicap the quail? I see. And this was an in vivo test of that. So could Vinny, when we flushed the birds, could he detect by whatever means that that bird had a radio collar on it? Was it slightly slower? Was it making some kind of a clicking sound with his wing beats hitting the antenna, whatever? Uh, we found out that uh, Vinny was not that efficient at catching quail. He only caught quail like, I think, 7% of the time. So he wasn't terribly efficient. <clears throat> but what was really impressive was what quail flew over once Vinny flushed. Hmm. In other words, they might typically a quail flight is 150 yards. Some of these flights might have been five and 600 yards. Really? And in a very tortuous path. It wasn't just going from here to there. They were flying at low level with the afterburners on because that hawk is right on their butt. And they're just weaving back and forth just like dogfights among military aircraft. And then finally they'd, zoop, they'd go down and they would uh, hit, go into one of these big cat claw acacias or bigger prickly pear. And 38% of the time, they went underground. 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 Fossorial is the term. Birds go into a rat hole. Well, why did they select those cat claw acacias? Because every cat claw acacia has got a rat hole. And those birds, a third of the time, would go into those rat holes to escape that enemy. So they've got tremendous respect for those enemies. I often tell quail hunters that, in my opinion, a quail would rather face you in a Benelli shotgun with an eight-shot magazine <laughs> than they would face that Cooper's hawk, and probably for good reason. Those, those hawks are, are making a living out of it. We're doing it for recreation. But uh, one of the things that, besides just their cover selection, again, was uh, just how far they can fly. Quail, Bob Whites can fly, wild Bob Whites can fly somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 32 miles an hour, something like that. Pen raised Bob White about 20 to 26, so much faster. But when they've got a Cooper's Hawk on them, I don't, we don't have an estimate of their flight speed, but I bet it's 40 miles per hour, and they have, uh, they're screaming their heads off, bloody murder, 
and they're trying to get out of there. Flying for their life. Flying for the life, exactly right. Other species uh, that have impacts that maybe the hawks uh, would maybe prefer. Uh, are there other things out there that could be in that habitat that are going to give the quail at least a little more advantage to maybe not be first on the menu? Yes, there surely are, Gary. We refer to those types of alternative prey species as buffer prey. In other words, is there something that allows, let them eat cake. Yes. As whoever, queen, whoever said, you know, kind of thing. Uh, so in our case, from the standpoint of hawks, it's going to be rabbits or it's going to be rats. And again, in 2016, we had an eruption of cotton rats. Cotton rats are quail with, with fur kind of thing. So they, they're basically the same size. We had, by our estimates, we had 24 cotton rats per acre. That's a lot of cotton rats. That is a lot. And uh, they was, those were, while a lot of people were mad at them because they were chewing the wires off their vehicles, a lot of people, I'd be one of the probably one out of 10,000 that had anything good to say about cotton rats, but I look at the world through a different set of eyes. I'm looking at it through a quail. And they did serve as a buffer prey and help take some of the predation pressure off of us. So those types of things, uh, again, cotton rats benefit from some of the same objectives, the, the residual grass and so forth that are going to benefit us for quail. I wanted to mention one, one last thing we learned from Becky Perkins' study. The conclusion that was what I call honor thy storm shelters. And from a rancher that's contemplating brush control, mm -hmm. you need to know which species are out there. And again, the fact that some of these are serving vital functions for quail. So know what you've got and be very careful. Again, measure twice and saw once. You can't go back and plant those woody plants. It's going to be 50 years before they're ready to go. So take advantage of what you got, but recognize and recognize that they do have some beauty. Because if that quail has to fly over about five seconds, he's probably dead meat. Wow. So we've got to have that type of interspersion on the landscape. And we can evaluate that. We've talked about the SHET technique, softball habitat evaluation technique. Mm -hmm. Ought to be able to throw a softball in the air from one quail house to the next. And some of those bigger quail houses are going to be storm shelters. So again, I want a good number of those available to me on the landscape. And maybe look at your prickly pear a little differently as well, that that prickly pear that you may be tempted to eliminate or at least reduce in great numbers, that has some value as well in terms of this equation. Right. And I think I shared with you one other time about the role of prickly pear as a cadence in nesting cover. I've got another one after seeing Vinny the hawk and, and how quail responded in the prickly pear, but I, I have to tell people this one's rated PG-13, so I hope we're dealing with a mature audience here, but, but that cadence goes, if a cooper's hawk is on your ass, head for dense pear, forget the grass. Your only chance is to stay well hidden, buried up deep in a pack rat midden. <laughs> so again, some of those things that are on the landscape out there, they may only be used once or twice a year, but they're important on those days. <laughs> Let's talk about roadrunners, one of my favorite species in Texas, really iconic in many ways. You have those on the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch. Many Texas landowners do. What are roadrunners doing to quail right now? In the court of public opinion, roadrunners would be lynched. Now the scientific evidence is not very damning at all. There's been a couple of studies, one down at the Chaparral Wildlife Area where they looked at roadrunner stomachs, they collected roadrunners, shot roadrunners over a two year period and had like 147 stomachs. They looked and I think they found quail chicks in two of them. Two. So pretty minor component. Mm -hmm. I tell people that Roadrunners are, are just like, they're feathered coyotes. They are, their diet is going to be dictated more by opportunity than just about anything else. 
but questions always arise again, and I can't tell you how many times that uh, somebody's come up to me when we talk about Roadrunner's Quail, well, I saw that son of a gun, and he was following that rooster in the hen, just peck, 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 just picked off every one of those chicks. Maybe. Um, I always question those a little bit, but I don't dispute them in the, in the person's presence. He knows what he saw, but oftentimes those are embellished. Uh, again, the, the scientific evidence is not too damning. We've had a couple of efforts out at the research ranch. One is where we monitored roadrunner nests during 2009-2010 with, with uh, video cameras, remote okay. video cameras, to see what the prey delivery, what did they bring to their nests, okay. to those uh, hatchlings. And I paused at this time to ask the listeners, how many roadrunner nests have you ever seen in your lifetime? And most of them are going to say, none. I've seen two. One of them was in the tool shed of somebody's old abandoned garage, and the other one was in an old abandoned mailbox up there on the telemetry ridge at the research ranch. So, uh, until we did these radio collared roadrunners. Now we had some we had some roadrunners with radio collars on them, and that's like truth serum. So we know exactly where they go. So we could follow them, find their nest. They were typically in the most dense brush that we had. If you think of uh, something like a little leaf sumac bush, that's very dense. Uh, those roadrunner nests would be about five feet off the ground in there, but oh. very well hidden. But we'd put a camera on those and be able to monitor what did the adults bring to those hatchlings. And first of all, you begin to appreciate just how hard those parents oh. have to work to feed a hungry family. And they would typically bring in grasshoppers, lizards, uh, horny toads, okay. small horny toads, okay. sometimes snakes. We never saw them bring any kind of feathered prey hmm. in, so we never a uh, quail chick or anything like that. Now again, I always ask for physical evidence. You know, if you've got some indisputable evidence that roadrunners are important, I'd like to see it. I have a guy out in New Mexico, uh, southeast New Mexico, that monitored a roadrunner nest and had gambles quail out there, and that, that roadrunner was bringing gambles quail chicks to the nest. So whenever somebody starts talking about roadrunners and quail, I don't... Uh, dispute the fact that they do catch some quail, just like I don't dispute the fact that coyotes catch some quail. But are they a management concern? Probably not. Again, a roadrunner has, a, it's an opportunistic diet, and they have their suite of enemies as well. Uh, we come across roadrunners that have been killed uh, typically by a hawk. Really? And I've all, I once came up on a sharp-shinned hawk. Now, a sharp-shinned hawk is smaller than a cooper's hawk. It doesn't weigh really more than a quail. But it had killed a roadrunner, and when I stepped out, it tried to carry that roadrunner off. Oh. Couldn't carry it six feet without dropping it because it was it was overloaded. It almost bit off more than chew. It killed it. <laughs> but um, they have their enemies too, you know, just like the old coyote and road wily coyote. He was always foiled. Well, in, in the real world, they are successful sometimes. So, coy uh, sorry. so roadrunner numbers will wax and wane, much like our quail numbers do. El Nino years, we're going to have more. 2016, you can't believe how many roadrunners we had. It was like as you drove down the road, it was like a constant roadrunner relay. One would get out in the road and run for 400 yards and then he'd dart in the brush. Another one would pick up the baton and keep on moving. You would have thought, there's no telling how many roadrunners we had out here. But uh, this year or last year, very so few roadrunners. So it's, uh, it's a wax and wane booming bust, much like the, the quail numbers are. And there are probably watering locations and other areas uh, that attract roadrunners that may be helping your research as well, right? We've used game cameras. Again, I'm... I'm anxious to get photographic evidence to interpret what the role of roadrunners is. And one of the ways that you can do that that I've found useful is game cameras. 
And I'll put those game cameras on video mode where I take a 10 second video clip of this encounter. So we've got uh, several watering facilities out there where we overflow the water. We wanna put the water on the ground and we'll monitor that with game cameras. And this is what I deduce based upon those types of observations. If a quail, if a pair of quail, a rooster, rooster hen come up with chicks less than uh, about four weeks old, so they're about that tall, mm -hmm. they assume a defensive posture and aggressive behavior as that roadrunner comes up. That tells me they perceive that roadrunner as a threat at that point. After those chicks are about five weeks of age, it's peaceful coexistence. I mean, literally, that roadrunner will be right there, and it's nonchalance with the hen and the, or the, the chicks. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain period of time. Again, if this was the deer world, we'd say, well, we got to protect those fawns till they're 45 days of age. About the same with quail. After that, they're relatively resistant or uh, less susceptible, if you will, to something like a roadrunner. So for landowners, Dale, let's think about what tools, what uh, strategies they might en encompass to deal with hawks and roadrunners. There's only so much they can do, right? Uh, hawks are migrating. Is that a species that continues to come in and out of the state dep depending on the time of year? Right. Uh, again, our, our greatest threat from hawks is going to be from about mid-October till about mid-April. And then they're based, most of them are out of the picture. We do have some resident hawks. And if you're in other parts of the state, you may have a lot of resident hawks or, or more accipiters or whatever the case may be. So case-by-case -case basis. But the best thing that we can do, again, is provide a lot of nesting cover mm -hmm. and a lot of grass cover just in general. I was down at Victoria, down in the coastal prairie about three years ago, having a quail appreciation day down there. And I asked the, the county agent, we were on this large ranch down there, and I said, take me to a 10. On a scale from one to 10, show me your very best quail habitat. He drove us out there in this open prairie. And my colleague Becky and I were sitting there in pickup, and we were nudging <laughs> each other with the elbow and going, three, not enough brush cover. But down there, the, the expanse of prairie grasses, the, the little blue stem, the big blue stem, so forth, that acted in lieu of brush cover. And you see the same thing up in much of Kansas. You don't have a whole lot of brush cover like we have in West Texas, but you have enough perennial grass cover, and that serves as adequate, in fact, maybe even improved over what we do. So their most open country, three to 5% brush cover, was what they thought was their management goal. In West Texas, we'd like to think it's somewhere between 15 to 25% brush cover for best habitability for bobwhites. The research that you and your team are completing at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch, how unique is it in terms of raptors, roadrunners, and these other predatory questions? Uh, is it fairly uh, unique among the research community? One of the unique things about the research ranch is our ability to look at long-term data sets because so many times a two-year master's thesis might give you a biased look. You know, you might have hit it good or you might have hit it bad, but you don't extrapolate beyond the range of your data. If you've got a 10-year data set or in 10 years we'll have a 20-year data set, then you begin to be able to look at that in the context of what's operating in the background kind of thing. If we think in the quail world, most of us have heard of Tall Timbers Research Station down in Florida. They've been operating for the last 40 years. The Cedar Clayburg Institute down in South Texas has some 10-year data sets. Oklahoma Department of Wildlife had a long-term data set on the Pack Saddle Wildlife Area. Those are, the, those are the nuggets. Those are the real things that you like to be able to look at and find out what kind of conclusions were based on that. So we're, we're in the long-term data collection business, and we're being able to look at it again because we deal with radio-collared quail. 
we can be able to find some things that the average person is blind to. They, they, just, they can't appreciate what's going on there. Your research team, the young people that you bring on to the research ranch to help with these efforts, I guess graduate students in many cases, uh, this is probably an area in which they've not spent much time. It's probably uh, a great opportunity for someone to get out and learn about these different species and their impacts on quail. Uh, you've got to have a, a great team to pull this type of research off. Right. And graduate students, we, we rely upon young people, young professionals, and that's one of the products that we think we're producing at the Quail Research Ranch is the fact who's gonna fill our shoes, you know? And so the ability to work with these bright, young, hungry, technologically advanced over what I am, being able to give them the naturalist abilities, hopefully that I've accumulated and others of my age, but marry those with the technological capabilities and the, uh, the wizardry, if mm -hmm. you will, uh, the, of today's technology and come up with a smarter quail guy 10 years from now than what, what you're talking to today. And so it, it helps me, it's, it's always a real benefit to me to keep my fingers in research because that helps keep me current. And then like I said, being able to help train these young individuals and then watch them go forth and multiply. I tell people it's like training a bird dog puppy. And you just give them plenty of opportunity to express their genetic potential and you teach them how to woe teach them a few basic commands, and then you just sit back and say, ain't that looking good, kind of thing. And so, yeah, I enjoy working with the young people and so forth. Uh, there, there was one thing, Gary, that uh, just to follow up our discussion, a lot of people have questions about it, and that is, do quail feeders attract hawks? Mm -hmm. Do they indeed, is it one of these Hippocratic Oath deals where if you've got quail feeders, well, the common coffee shop phrase is, if the quail know where the feeder is, so do the hawks. And so we've got a long-term data set out there. We've got about 900 waypoints where quail have been killed. And uh, we'll be doing a spatial analysis, a GIS analysis, of being able to look at the patterns that relative to feeders. And you know, if we buffer around those feeders, 50, 100, and 250 meters around those feeders, can we indeed say a quail's chances of being killed are much higher if it's visiting that feeder than if it didn't visit that feeder. So that's some of the interesting research that I've, uh, I'm hoping to capitalize on the next couple of years. We've got a tremendous data set for that. Outstanding, we look forward to seeing that. And I know folks interested in this topic and others related to quail and quail management in Texas, great resource available at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch and Foundation website, quailresearch.org is the place to go. Take a look, I think you'll be very pleased with information about not only what we're talking about today, but what we've talked about in previous podcasts and in future podcasts, great topics. Dr. Dale, we appreciate your time today and thank you for what you're doing to help quail in Texas. Thank you, Gary. It's always uh, glad to be a part of this. And again, uh, like you have, I encourage our listeners, if you've got uh, questions, if you've got uh, criticisms, you and I are both professional communicators and we value constructive criticism. So give us your feedback so we can improve future podcasts. You bet. I second that. And please let us know of other topics that you might be interested in and things we can do to help you with the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.